Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by Policy Forum and the National Security College at the ANU. This is our first podcast for 2019 and it is a special edition. We were planning a different podcast to start the year off, but recent events have brought us into the studio earlier. And I am joined here by Professor Rory Medcalf, the head of the National Security College at the ANU, and we are going to be talking about the current diplomatic climate between China and a number of Western democratic countries, such as Australia. Professor Rory Medcalf, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Hi, Chris. So let's jump straight into it. On the 19th of January, an Australian citizen, Yang Han Jun, was arrested shortly after his arrival in China. Australian citizens are arrested in countries all over the world, including China, on a routine basis. Why is this arrest different? Well, I think there's a there's obviously a diplomatic and strategic context to anything that happens now between Australia and China. The uh, This arrest was caused for concern for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, of course, it follows so soon after the detention of Canadian nationals in China, uh, which is seen widely as a kind of hostage-taking diplomacy in response to um, uh, the extradition uh, process facing a Chinese citizen in Canada. There's also the question about the Australia-China relationship. There was a sense last year that things were beginning to ease in terms of tensions. Uh, This brings tensions, I guess, to a higher level again. And there's apparently, a, uh, I guess, a, a lack of respect for bilateral agreements and the way this detention was carried out. There was a, uh, a period of time by which the Australian Embassy needed to be notified of this detention and given access to this Australian citizen. Neither of those uh, were honoured. And uh, then, of course, there's the, uh, I guess, the cloud over the decision to detain uh, Mr Young, which, of course, relates to what was his crime? Is this to do with uh, being a political dissident, being uh, to some degree, I guess, an advocate of democracy? Is there any substance to the Chinese claims that this is about national security or espionage? And finally, was there something about the timing, which was also on the eve of a visit to China by the Australian Defence Minister. So a lot of questions. So it's been termed in the media uh, by a number of people. I think also you've mentioned the term hostage diplomacy. Is is the the central claim that China is essentially taking uh, citizens of foreign countries hostage as an act of diplomacy to try and coerce other countries into taking China's national interests into account before they take their own into account? Well, I think that is the case with the uh, detention of... uh, the two Canadians, uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, back in December. 
but uh, that's only one of a number of possible explanations uh, about this Australian instance. I wouldn't, I wouldn't leap to that conclusion. It's one of perhaps three or four explanations we need to consider. There is, however, I think a really worrying trend uh, regarding detentions in China of foreign nationals and of Chinese nationals as well, uh, but of foreign nationals, uh, not only foreign nationals of Chinese origin, but now, of course, with these Canadians, um, other foreign nationals. And I think we're going to see really in the year ahead uh, much greater scrutiny by not only Western countries, but a wide range of countries about how do they properly caution their nationals or prepare their nationals for this possibility. This is a new risk on the international scene and it's going to make regular diplomacy with China increasingly hard. So you did mention um, that it's not just foreign nationals that we and the world is concerned about in terms of detention in China. That is actually a topic that we're going to be touching on in our next podcast uh, with another colleague of mine, Professor Michael Clark, where we will be looking at at the detention of China's Uyghur community in the uh, Xinjiang Autonomous Region in Western China, or as other people call it, East Turkestan. This podcast, we're looking specifically at the act of detaining foreign nationals in what may be an act of diplomacy, coercion or not, we just don't know. Now, you just mentioned that the Australian response and the global response is important in terms of where we go from here. How has the Australian response been to not only the detention of Yang Hanjun, but also the detention of the Canadian nationals been in your opinion so far? Look, I think the Australian response has been fairly cautious uh, regarding all of these. I would like to see, uh, a, I guess, a more forward-leaning response from Australia, particularly actually in regard to the, the Canadians, where we know the circumstances, we know really how unacceptable that kind of hostage diplomacy was. Um, with regards to the Australian citizen detained, uh, the Australian government is doing some of the right things. Um, there was a public expression of concern. There were uh, expressions of concern relayed privately by the minister to the Chinese government. Uh, consular access has been pursued and finally granted. And really uh, now, I hope, uh, the Australian government is gathering enough information to form a view as to whether it should take further steps. Um, but the bigger question for me becomes how do we prepare other Australian nationals for this kind of risk in the future. Um, in the meantime, the Canadian issue will continue to play out and I think Australia can be a bit more forthright uh, in really calling for the release of those Canadian citizens, uh, not simply expressing concern about the fact that they've been detained because in the end, a lot of the small and middle-sized democracies around the world are going to face potential uh, coercion by China on a nation-by-nation basis, we're only going to have leverage in response to that if we work together. So just on the Canadian nationals, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, these two gentlemen were a businessman and also a former diplomat who now works in a think tank. Is this arbitrary detention hostage diplomacy on behalf of China, sending a signal to other business people in foreign countries or other think tankers and so on, that there is a particular risk in their profession of of going to somewhere like China? So I think uh, there is an emerging problem here. I think the detention in particular of Michael Koverig, former diplomat, now working for Crisis Group, you know, an international organisation dedicated to, um, I guess, objective analysis of security problems. 
That's someone who thousands of academics, people who work in think tanks, journalists and so forth can relate to. And so there are a lot of people who've built their careers around engaging China or trying to understand China who may be now quietly having second thoughts uh, about the risks that they would face, uh, maybe not in the near term, but on some future occasion if when they were visiting China there was a bilateral dispute between their country and China. Uh, And I do think that's something that individuals will have to take into account and I do think that's something that that will have to be factored into travel advice down the track. Uh, It's very sensitive, uh, but I do think it's a a possibility that wasn't on the horizon a year or two ago, that is of foreign nationals who are not of Chinese origin being subject to arbitrary arrest in China. These are people who have based their careers around engagement with China, international engagement, global engagement with the country and its people. Are these kind of messages actually going to harm China's ability to engage with the rest of the world and be a global actor? Oh, I think this is very harmful to China's ability to serve its own interests through engagement. Uh, Really, uh, it could hardly have picked, I think, a a worse target than the employee of the International Crisis Group because that sends a signal that uh, if you're neutral and objective but you happen to be foreign and you happen to belong to a nationality that China's having a dispute with, then you are at risk. And that really uh, places many thousands of people who want to engage China into a situation where they have to think about whether engagement is actually worth it. One might say that China or the Communist Party of China isn't particularly interested in objective analysis. Should we be looking at warning Australian citizens how to consider their travel to China in light of these circumstances? Well, I think there's uh, there's nothing wrong with making our travel advice uh, a lot more honest on this issue. Uh, If you look at the Canadian travel advice or the American travel advice to China, they explicitly refer to the uh, the possibility of uh, use of, I guess, arbitrary powers, um, arbitrary arrest or detention. The Australian travel advice, it does warn about the enforcement of local laws. It does refer to the exit bans that China imposes on some foreign nationals, but it doesn't explicitly refer to the risk of arbitrary detention. And I think it's only a matter of time before Australia and a whole range of other countries, uh, particularly uh, Western democracies, begin to warn their citizens of that possibility in their travel advice. That's not to say don't go to China. It's a decision that everybody uh, makes and takes on the basis of their own circumstances. But really, travel advice is there uh, to ensure that there is a that, that a duty of care has been served for our nationals. We can't uh, help or rescue or get our nationals out of trouble wherever they are. Uh, and of course, sometimes uh, our nationals might be detained for good reason. But we can give them fair warning in advance. Uh, and I think it's only a matter of time before the Australian government does that. And that will be politically sensitive. Are travel warnings also an act of diplomacy? Are they more than just a com- communication to our own national? Well, that's where, that's where it does become politically sensitive because some countries use them for political signalling. Uh, some countries read them as political signalling. But at the same time, uh, when you think of the fact that there are a million Australians overseas at any one time and uh, our friends in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade are always receiving requests for support and help uh, based on circumstances where perhaps if the, um, if the Australian citizen had been aware beforehand they might not have taken that risk, uh, there's there's really no option but for the government to, I think, be, be pretty forthright 
with our citizens about the risks, even if that creates political sensitivities with a host government. Uh, at the moment, of course, Australia's travel advice for China is on the same level as our travel advice for New Zealand, Britain, Germany, um, not places where you expect arbitrary detention to take place. Our travel advice for France and India is actually uh, at a higher level uh, with greater levels of warning than it is for China. So I suspect this is going to change over time. Just as much as I suspect that this is an issue that's not going to go away in the near future, thanks very much for coming in and speaking to us today on the National Security Podcast. My pleasure, Chris. And thanks to Rory for coming in, having another chat with us on a pretty pressing issue. Something that I was hoping to do in our planned first podcast for the year is to introduce a new co-host for the National Security Podcast. You have heard from Catherine before in our Women in National Security podcast series, but we are now joined and will be joined for the rest of the year by Catherine Manstead. She is a colleague of mine at the National Security College. She is also a fellow at the Belfer Centre at Harvard University. Catherine is a reformed lawyer and now a national security and technology junkie. Catherine, welcome back to the National Security Podcast. It's fantastic to be here, Chris. Now, I'm going to lean on your former law career here, and we're going to discuss an issue that flows on from what we were just discussing with Rory, and that is the unsealing of two indictments in the United States, one that is concerning uh, the CFO of Huawei, Meng Wanzhou, who people claim that that arrest of Meng in Canada and the pending extradition to the US is the reason for China's alleged hostage diplomacy uh, where they've arrested Michael Kovig and Michael Spavor. There is a second indictment as well that has been unsealed and this is in relation to espionage that is supposedly being carried out by Huawei. Huawei is the uh, technology and telecommunications and internet company in China that is essentially being turned into a global pariah because it is being accused of either being a vessel for spying and espionage on behalf of the Communist Party of China, or at least having great potential to be so should the Communist Party and the Chinese government demand of it these actions. And so many countries are now um, divesting themselves of any Huawei technology or blocking Huawei from investing in their national critical infrastructure due to these concerns. And there has been a complaint that uh, there was no proof behind these claims of espionage or at least the high risk of espionage. And I believe, Catherine, that this unsealing of the indictment has basically changed the game. Could you give us a broad view to start off with what these indictments are about and what they mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think this is a really interesting contrast here. Um, we were talking before, you were talking before with Rory about the growing and worrying trend of hostage diplomacy on China, uh, on China's part, which is characterised by 
uh, an arbitrary use of the legal system, co-opting the legal system in China to the purposes of the state and kind of closed door decisions that the international community doesn't have looked through into. And then on the other hand, um, in America now, particularly with the unsealing of the two indictments that you just mentioned, we're seeing something of a, of a sunlight strategy where the US is being open with some of the evidence that its um, intelligence community and justice department and other departments has assembled against Huawei. And we're seeing that uh, being put out now into the public domain and subjected to the American legal process. Uh, So an indictment isn't just something that you can work up overnight. In this case, it took uh, about a year for the evidence to be assembled by a multi-department effort um, led by the Department of Justice. But Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. With a lot of other US departments in putting into that process... And it's something that's now come to a head and, and is now out in the public domain. And I think that's a, it's a really uh, interesting um, comparison for us to see at this particular time and with the, the context, uh, the geopolitical context we're seeing I'd, at the moment. I'd like to get to that, that big picture issue soon. Can, can you let me know what it was that was in this actual indictment that has really uh, sparked everyone's attention or grabbed everyone's attention? Yeah, so as you mentioned, there's two indictments, and and the first one relates to the uh, allegations that uh, Huawei has been fraudulently avoiding the the sanctions regime against Iran, uh, and that's the case that the detention of Huawei's uh, C, uh, CFO in Canada relates to those particular sets of of allegations. The other indictment uh, relates to allegations that Huawei employees at the direction and indeed behest of Huawei executives were involved in corporate cyber espionage um, quite a number of years ago, actually, and it started in 2012, uh, trying to steal some important technology from T-Mobile. And I think what is really uh, useful and important about that second indictment in particular, is that, as you've mentioned uh, before, basically we've seen a lot of governments stepping back from engagement with Huawei. The US last year effectively banned Huawei products and equipment from being used in in the US. In Australia, we had a decision to prevent uh, companies under extrajudicial direction from being involved in the rollout of our 5G network, and that was widely perceived to be targeted towards Huawei. But so far, what we haven't had is some fact base that can inform the public debate and the decision-making process about this. And I think that's really important that now we see in this indictment, we see allegations, for instance, that the particular acts of corporate espionage uh, that Huawei employees engaged in uh, allegedly occurred with not just the the knowledge or tacit, uh, tacit kind of acceptance of Huawei executives, but at the direction from executives at a senior level, uh, and that indeed Huawei employees were offered bonuses if they could collect some good information and and send it via an encrypted email channel back to Huawei HQ. What a supportive workplace Huawei is. Exactly. I mean, bonuses for good work. But 
this is important, I think. And uh, opinions differ. I mean, some people might say, well, you know, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a limp response when you're suffering consistently from this high level of corporate espionage to kind of use an indictment and a criminal procedure against what is a really quite a quite an important state on state dynamic here. But I think it's really good that this is now something out there. There's some facts. I mean, they're not proven yet. And the Justice Department's been at great lengths to emphasise that in the US uh, system of justice, you're innocent until proven guilty. But still, in order and, to and, have... And that's in comparison to other law systems where that may not exist, possibly China. Exactly. A good counterpoint to be made. Um, but in order for an indictment to be unsealed, it, there is a process there. So a grand jury needs to assess that there's a level of evidence that meets a certain legal threshold, that there's a case to answer. And and I think that's that's good for public debate here because ultimately in a democracy, decisions even about national security, but particularly where national security intersects with the economy, need to be made I think, with the consent of people and with an informed debate. And when you're making decisions, for instance, in Australia about excluding someone from the rollout of 5G, I mean, that's that's an important economic decision. That decision in Australia has real economic and business impacts for different interests. So I think it's important that we are able to point to um, – in the, in the American case, these indictments to say, hang on, this isn't just spies and, and politicians saying, you know, just trust us. These, there, there are concerns here. There is some way that we can actually assess and understand those risks a bit better. Yeah. And if, if you wanted to quantify exactly how this impacts uh, business and society, in the last 24 hours, TPG, a large supplier in Australia, has said that they are now no longer able to enter into the 5G market to become the fifth provider in the country, uh, simply because a lot of their technology was based on Huawei products. And now it's not feasible for them to come into the market. And therefore, competition is reduced a little bit and therefore you would expect that that means that consumers are going to pay a little bit more than they otherwise would. So what you're saying is that unsealing these indictments and showing the actual evidence of espionage against Huawei is a in one part a tool to bring the public along with the policy to justify why we are paying these extra costs. Now another way to look at these indictments is that is it effective in terms of curbing China or at least Huawei's behaviour. We say China because there is this standard belief out there that Huawei is a Trojan horse for the Chinese Communist Party and the, and the Chinese government. Does in unsealing this indictment and putting in train these legal proceedings, is that going to stop this kind of behaviour? How, how does it play into that kind of uh, national security policy space? First thing I note is the indictments don't specifically link these actions back to the Chinese government. Um, it does link it back to senior Huawei executives, but it doesn't take it so far as to say this happened at the, at the behest or even with the implicit understanding of the Chinese government. But I think, yes, you're, you're right that there are questions over to what extent does this indictment or sunlight strategy affect China's behaviour or deter them from this particular activity. Certainly, this isn't the first time that the US has used uh, this kind of indictment sunlight strategy to draw attention to uh, Chinese corporate espionage. So the first uh, instance of this was back in 2014 during the Obama administration when five PLA officers uh, were, according to the, uh, the indictment that was released, alleged to have engaged in corporate espionage. The jury's really out on whether or not that 
was effective at changing China's behaviour. So it certainly got a great reaction it, from them when when it was released. Well. At the time and and shortly afterwards, that particular indictment was credited with bringing Xi Jinping to the table with then-President Obama uh, to enter into a deal to say, well, we're not going to do corporate cyber espionage anymore. I think, though, what actually happened was it was kind of convenient for China to sign up to that agreement at that time. And what they did, rather than ending corporate espionage, is they just got better at it. Yeah, I think they moved it, a lot of it from the PLA over into the Ministry of State Security rather than changing it yes, and stopping it. So arguably, they got better at hiding it. They also centralised their cyber espionage efforts, cyber corporate espionage efforts, so that they would be focusing more on what were determined to be priority industries for China rather than just kind of it being more of a free-for-all um, at, at a more decentralised level. So I think a lot of the optimism about the use of this indictment strategy to influence China's behaviours probably uh, was misplaced and the time has told that it maybe didn't influence China or deter China to the extent that we maybe thought that it would. However, I think the key benefit of this type of indictment strategy is actually messaging to the public and also to America's partners and to the broader Five Eye community's partners about the particular concerns and risks that there are with engaging with China. And to the US's credit, it's kind of a if you've got it, flaunt it idea. They've got a good legal system that's reputed around the world for being uh, something that has due process, fairness, that's a very established kind of process and that is good at bringing facts uh, to light in a, in a measured and legalistic way. And I think that's a great way for the US to be able to be thinking about some of these threats that we see and some of the kind of more nefarious uh, state, act, uh, state actions that we're are seeing at the moment, which aren't really at the threshold of war, but they're a little bit more than just ye olde crime. So how, do, how does a democracy respond to that? And I think the best way for a democracy to respond to that is by using the institutions that have served as well, by making sure we just don't reduce the debate to a secret behind closed doors. We have intelligence kind of messaging from governments, but they are, that we are a bit more forward leaning. And using those tools that we have, being the legal system, due process and other regulatory regimes, to try and combat some of this uh, coercion and and other nefarious behaviour that we see from China and from other state actors as well. On on a t- tactical and operational level, um, one of the claims for releasing this kind of information as well is that you're disrupting the operations of your adversary. If you can say to them... Not only do we know that you're doing this, we know who is doing it, we know what offices they work in, and therefore we obviously know the the tactics and the strategies that they're using to conduct this espionage. So if you're the adversary and you you now know that they know what you're doing, you're going to have to change your behaviour because you're going to expect that there's going to be active countermeasures and active defence. So there is the idea that um, releasing this information disrupts their activities and it's going to make them have to change. Did you want to follow on thing from that? You can say, no, that's bullshit if you want. Um, <laughs> Look, I think to some extent that's true. It's embarrassing for perhaps particular officials that have been caught out by that. Mm. I mean, a counter-argument, of course, is that by putting your cards on the table like Mm. this, maybe you're letting the adversary understand what activity is being monitored. Is is there any way the release of these indictments and possibly even the arrest of Meng Wanzhou as part of uh, the Trump administration's strategy and trade war to force China to readdress its trade relationship with the US? 
So this sunlight indictment strategy has actually predated the Trump administration. So during uh, President Obama's term, this idea of naming and shaming corporate espionage and cyber attackers was first introduced. And so the Obama administration was the first to publicly attribute a cyber attack, for example, uh, in that case, the attack against Sony Pictures to North Korea. And they were also the first, um, as we discussed, to indict, uh, in that case, PLA officers for corporate espionage. Certainly, uh, we've seen an uptick throughout the the Trump presidency on on the use of this indictment tool. There's been a couple over the past uh, past year uh, in 2018 and also in 2017 as well. And it's paired in with Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions' broader plan of his China initiative to use legal processes and, and tools to rein in Chinese uh, coercion and corporate espionage. But I don't think that this is something that is certainly not a, a White House initiative. In fact, it's not clear the extent to which the White House was fully appraised of the events that led up to the unsealing of these indictments. The legal process uh, is moving differently and certainly not in lockstep with the White House. And indeed, broader concerns about Chinese uh, economic coercion, about Huawei uh, and about cyber corporate espionage are shared across bipartisan lines. And indeed, I think many within the administration at a bureaucratic level and also many within Congress, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, uh, would see this as a positive step and uh, would in fact perhaps be a bit nervous that President Trump's impending negotiations over the trade war could in some way jeopardise or, or, or bring into question some of these legal processes that are that are occurring. Yeah, I'm sure that there was a collective face slap across many departments in the US when President Trump suggested that he may use Meng Wanzhou as, as a tool to get a trade agreement. I can't see that as being an effective tool of diplomacy or even a tool of coercion for China at all. So I'm not sure if you've brought your crystal ball with you into the studio today. I if have, you, surprisingly. You have. Yes. Excellent. So can you look into it and tell me where you think, how successful you think this strategy of unsealing indictments is, is going to be and possibly what uh, China's response might be. So I think the most important uh, aspect of it from my perspective is injecting some facts that meet a certain legal threshold into the public debate. I think that's really important. Whether or not it changes China's behaviour um, in a positive way from from America's perspective, I'm not so sure. Indeed, I think this kind of strategy of using legal tools more uh, and holding criminal conduct to account might actually um, suggest that the US is more prepared to take on the risk that China will escalate in response to these things. Uh, but I think what's most important is that we have a, a baseline of facts and that we have a coalition of, of, of partners around the world uh, who are willing to stand up to any country, be it, be it China or, or, or insert other state here, when they sponsor or engage in criminal conduct, when they're entities within uh, their country engage in cyber attacks and they don't properly follow it up and, and, and prosecute that action. I think we need to be for more forward-leaning on that as a whole, um, particularly democratic countries, and I think the US is, is starting a positive trend. Excellent. Well, let's hope so. 
So, Catherine, thanks very much for delving into the details of this complex legal and geopolitical issue. And thank you for coming on as my co-conspirator at the National Security Podcast. We really look forward to hearing from you and interviewing guests and maybe joining in discussion with me like this in the future. And thanks very much for being part of the show today. Very much looking forward to the forthcoming banter. Excellent. And if you out there have any positions or opinions on what we've discussed today, or if there's anything that you'd like to hear us discuss in the future, be sure to get in touch on Twitter by using Apps Policy Forum or via Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society, or send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net. And we will be back in another couple of weeks to speak to my colleague, Michael Clark, where we'll be discussing uh, China's counter-terrorism efforts and their social management policies in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, or as others like to call it, East Turkestan. We look forward to hearing from you then. Thanks very much for listening to the National Security Podcast. <laughs>